Okay, so you're here for some great church leadership content. The podcast is great, but there's also another piece of content you need to be enjoying each week. It is the Leading Saints email newsletter. Now I get it. Email newsletters feel so 2006, you know? But it isn't as old-fashioned as you might think. It's actually one of the most popular pieces of content that Leading Saints produces. Each week, I share a unique leadership thought that can only be found in the newsletter. I keep it short and sweet. Most can read it in less than five minutes. And then we share with you recent content you might have missed, throwback episodes, and Leading Saints events that happen more often than you might anticipate. If you want to make sure you are on the email list, simply visit leadingsaints.org 14. That's leadingsaints.org 14. That will also get you 14 days access to our full library of content not available to the general public. So look for Leading Saints in your inbox by going to leadingsaints.org 14 or click the link in the show notes. So you're checking us out as maybe a potential podcast you could start listening to. I know many of you have been listening for a long time, but let me just talk to the newbies for a minute. What is Leading Saints? What are we trying to do here with this podcast? Well, let me explain. Leading Saints is a nonprofit organization. A 501c3 is what they call it. And we have a mission to help Latter-day Saints be better prepared to lead. Now, of course often means in the context of a calling. It may mean in your local community, your work assignments. We've heard about our content influencing all sorts of leaders in all sorts of different contexts. We invite you to listen to this episode and maybe a few others of our 500 plus episodes that we have out there. Jump in and begin to learn and begin to consider some of these principles we talk about on the Leading Saints podcast. Here we go. Today, we're headed down to St. George, Utah to chat with Monty Holm. How are you, Monty? I'm doing great. How are you, Kirk? Very good. This has uh, been a long time coming. I'm excited to uh, finally get this recorded and, and learn more about your experience. And uh, you mentioned before we hit record that you actually joined the church at 17 in St. George, Utah. That's not a typical story, right? Well, I don't, it's probably not so typical, but then one of the great uh, blessings, the greatest blessing in my life was joining the church. I was raised uh, in a fundamentalist group, believe it or not. And, oh, really? Wow. And uh, had ran away from there a few times and ended up in St. George and was working a couple part-time jobs and was introduced uh, a year or so later by a girl that I was dating, actually, that I liked a lot. And um, <laughs> she recommended that I take the lessons, and I just I did and fell head over heels in love with what I'd heard and felt and Joined the church at age 17 and a half and, and went on a mission at age 19 or came home and later attended Dixie College and met my sweetheart and entered my industry and off I was to the races and loved every yeah. Wow. So joining the church from a with a fundamentalist background, I mean, was it was that a different conversion process, do you feel like, or how would you explain it? I would say to to a large degree. I mean, in those days, the missionaries had the, the old flip charts that they held in their arm and the Mr. Brown <laughs> lessons that I loved so much. And they um, taught me those lessons. And believe it or not, I didn't know much about the church at all. All I felt was fear and condemnation in my youth and oh, wow. never, had never in my life felt the sense, a sense of belonging, which is any human's most basic need. 
But when I joined the church, I just felt for the first time in my life this incredible sense of belonging and love from these precious people. And but I, but yeah, the conversion process was through lots of prayer, and probably the biggest thing is I struggled with with a prophet, whether or not there's really a prophet. Would God love his people? And is there a prophet on the earth to guide and lead the people? And and I had a chance to run across President Kimball at the time and a chance encounter with him that touched me so deeply. Uh, I just had this overwhelming sense of belief and and I've just never questioned it since. And again, it's been wow. the greatest blessing of my life. So under what context were you with that you came across Spencer W. Kimball? Well, I was driving. I was driving through St. George and a Cadillac. The time passed me and I had seen enough pictures and had been taught by those missionaries enough to know what he looked like. And I realized that was him in the back seat of this car. And I quickly turned my car around and followed him on the boulevard <laughs> and uh, followed that car down to the temple. And I parked back a ways. I've not told this story hardly ever, other than to my family. Parked back a ways, and I watched Marion G. Romney and N. L. Tanner, those two men, that I later learned more about them. But I watched all three of them get out of a car. Two of them got out of one side. President Kimball got out of the side opposite of the temple and began to walk away from the temple across the street away. And the other two stood there like they almost didn't know what he was doing. He walked across the street, down the street, and there was an older lady hobbling with a walker. And President Kimball walked up to this sweet lady and put his arm around her, actually hugged her and helped her walk up to the temple and then toward the temple and then up into the temple. And when I watched his kindness and his love toward that, I just had this from watching back, maybe five or eight car lights back, just sitting there parking by myself. I just had tears down my face and I felt his love and I felt Heavenly Father's love. And I knew then that this is his church. And I it just touched me more deeply than I can even express here. It was special wow. experience for me. Yeah, what a great experience. And, you know, I had the privilege of reading his uh I guess there's a couple of biographies of, of his out and it's full of those type of stories, right? Where he just helped so many in, in such simple ways and served and loved people in a remarkable way. He's a great example for sure. So uh, it sounds like a pretty significant conversion right off the bat that, I mean, was the going on a mission a tough decision for you? Well, I lived by myself for, you know, the time from the time I joined the church and about eight months before I joined the church actually and was fixed finishing up my high school in St. George by myself, living alone. And and then um, I was able to actually help teach and baptize an older brother. And uh, he and I both went on missions at the same time. He went, actually, he's, he's older than me. And so he went just a few months before I did. And so going on a mission was um, it fairly easy for me. My bishop at the time was incredibly, he became the most influential man in my life ever. Wow. You know, um, so it was it was easy when he asked me to do something. I that I wanted to do it, and yeah, yeah, so it's amazing the power of those relationships, right? If if that relationship gets established, then you know obedience is really easy when you love somebody, right? Well said. And then where were you called to on your first mission? I went to North Carolina on my first mission, and then um, South Carolina on my second mission. Oh wow, you got the Carolinas covered, huh? 
I always tell people nothing could be finer than to serve in the Carolinas. So <laughs> great experience. Love it. Yeah. So you come back from your mission and uh, what uh, direction did your career take you in? Well, it was the last few days of my mission that I was uh, teaching a man who said, uh, hey, when are you done with this little thing you're doing? And I said, well, this is not a little thing. This is my life. He said, well, I think you would be great in my industry. And I want you to, wherever you live, I want you to stay here. I said, no, I'm not going to stay here. I'm going to go back. And my quote to him was, I'm going to go find, find a wife and build a life back home. And he said, well, you'd be good in the financial services industry. And, and I said, well, give me your number. He gave me a card. And I called him every week or so for a year after I came home and he mentored me and helped me transition into the financial services industry. And that's been, that was a great choice too. It was, it's been very good to me over my last. Nice. And uh, that pretty much where you, where you stayed for your entire career then? That's where I stayed. I worked with a company for 12 years and me and a few others founded a new company after 12 years. And that's where I've been for 30, so 31 years now. Oh, great. Uh, it's been incredible for me. Nice. And then uh, what, what do you feel like was your first uh, taste of, you know, some maybe some heavy leadership roles, whether in your, in your professional life or in your religious life? My bishop was a young man. He was 29 years old at the time when I joined the church. And uh, he called me to be his first assistant in the priest quorum. And um, that was just, uh, I felt like it was a heavy responsibility at the time. But I had no, I was just living alone in a little tiny apartment and he mentored me and helped me understand leadership, wanted me to be the example. I had long hair. I actually had hair back then and it was <laughs> kind of over my shoulders and I probably wasn't the best example of what uh, a young man in a priest quorum would look like. But I had uh, lots of mentoring from him about being the example, about leading, helping lead that, uh, that quorum and he asked me to call him. He asked me to conduct meetings. He asked me to do things that uh, helped me stretch my vision and helped me see a different uh, person that I could become. And uh, again, I mentioned that he became the most influential person in my life today. Wow. So there's almost this reframing of your identity that really helped you, you know, laid a foundation for you to grow from. Well, I think that's what happens in leadership. When we understand our duty and when we understand who and what we're supposed to become, what we can become, I think our identity does change. We put ourselves on a trajectory that, you know, at any given time, if, you know, I mean, it's one of the great challenges in life is for people to see their possibilities and, and to see what Heavenly Father even wants us to be and who He wants us to become. But so many people, maybe so many of us, don't realize the possibilities we have and who we should be desire to become. Heavenly Father, I'm convinced that, as Sildur Bednar sometimes speaks of, that we're not really human beings, we're human becomings. Mm -hmm. as, as human becomings, just means that we're in the, on a trajectory to be, become something, and we can control that. There's never a moment, never a second, that we don't have the power to, to change our trajectory. Leadership you know, it's when, when we see ourselves as leaders and when we accept the mantle of leadership, we have the responsibility, in my view, to become what we hope we can lead others to become. Yeah, that's powerful. Anything worth noting? I know you've been 
an elders corn president, a bishop, a stake president, anything as you reflect on those, some of those callings, any principles come to the surface that really blessed you and your, your leadership and helped you lead better? Well, I mean, lots of principles. The principle of love is the one that comes to mind yeah. most strongly when we love other people, when we when it's about them, not about us, then I think it's easier to lead. When we honestly this to it, it's all and everything about them and their salvation and losing ourselves in their lives and helping lift and bless them, not for any self-aggrandizement, not for anything that comes to us because it's our duty and because we truly literally fall in love with uh, these people. When I was getting ready to go on my mission, I had, I had a brother tell me he, one day, he said, let me tell you the secret to a great mission. He said, it's only three things. Work really, really hard. Lose yourself in the work. And number one, number two, be obedient. Uh, literally just be obedient in every way. Obedience is everything. And then the third thing is love the people. Fall in love with those people, those precious people. And he said, if you'll do those three things, you'll have an incredible mission and, and, and eventually an incredible life. And, and so that touched me. And I think that's the key to any leadership role. Does any, anything come to mind as far as in the context of maybe being the bishop or the stake president where you strive to show that love? And, and what did that look like? Well, yeah. I mean, it, it shows up. How much you love someone shows up in what you do. It always, it, our belief system manifests itself in what we do, always. And the manifestation of our love shows up in, I mean, the examples of it for me to, to see it. I mean, I, I could tell lots of stories about things that I personally have done, but, but to see others, I mean, the most inspirational experiences I've had is watching others do that, a Relief Society president who literally just showed up in any circumstances uh, within the stake, especially with, uh, this was a stake Relief Society president. She's she's now on mission. She's a mission president, president's wife down in mm-hmm. Costa Rica right now, two of the oh, most cool. incredible people that I know and love. She, uh, My wife happened to be one of her, her counselors, and we watched her this sweet woman served that stake unlike any other leader that I've ever seen in, in that type of a calling. And, and it just meant that she was there upon, I just watched her drop everything she was doing so many, many times to go lift and serve and bless others. Yeah. And while, you know, I, we had an example of just, for example, we had a, a flood, a major flood come down to, we had nine separate communities in our stake. And, one of the communities, one of those nine had a big flood come through that damaged lots of homes and just flooded complete basements. And we watched her and so many other people just lose themselves in serving other people. Lots and lots of stories and examples. Wow, that's inspiring. And is there a story to uh, when you were called as the stake president? Does anything come to mind? Well, um, nobody aspires to those callings. <laughs> you, um, I think the Lord... You know, he sometimes calls us to, for us, for the need we have. My wife and I have said so many times that that calling specifically was more for us than for the stake. We have precious members that have thanked us and we love them. We've fallen in love with those people, miss them greatly. We were released and um, moved away from there. Periodically, we still run into those precious people and we just love them. But when I was called to be a stake president, I 
that of those nine communities I mentioned, I hadn't spent much time in all but one of them. We had a, a ranch, a really nice ranch up on a hill, and, and we would come and go from St. George up to that ranch. But passing through those communities, I had never, literally never turned off that road to go to those other wards, off the main road to go to those wards or those neighborhoods. I just never had. Yeah. <laughs> and the, the the morning after I was called, I went and spent, I was driving and I had appointments and things to do, but I just turned that car and I just blew off a bunch of appointments and, and I went and drove through that entire state, through all those neighborhoods and looked at those homes. And I literally imagined behind those doors, those precious families, the husbands and wives and the children and thought about uh, you know, who's teaching those kids and what are we teaching those kids and what are my responsibilities? And I just had this overwhelming feeling of sense of, of love for people that I'd never even met and didn't know, but knew that I was called to serve them. And I had um, Emily Father blessed me with just feelings that touched me deeply then. And, and of course, later those feelings manifest themselves and meeting those people and all the things you do as a stake president, you're not really on the front lines as much as a stake president as you are a bishop, as as you yeah. know. I think you served as yep. as bishop, mm-hmm. and uh, it's just a precious thing to fall in love with these people. And I feel like yeah. that's what happened. So it was a, one of the great privileges of our lives to serve them and serve with them. So were you uh, serving as a bishop at the time of your call as a stake president? I was, yes, I was serving as a bishop at the time. Of, I'd gotcha. been three. About three and a half years as a bishop when I was called in state. Oh, okay. Was there anything uh, worth mentioning as far as that transition? I mean, I think you alluded to it a little bit that you suddenly realized you're not, you know, on the ground as much with uh, as close to the people as you are when when you're a bishop. But anything else worth noting in that transition? You know, it's, it's not, uh, you know, it's a, it's a calling of where right. we're called to serve and lift other people. And it's, um, it's a humbling experience that was for me. My family helped confirm for me that, you know, when, I mean, they attended both call and they were there when we were set apart and, and uh, the general authorities who did both of those callings along with the state presidency confirmed to our family through the blessings and through the culture, the ordination process that we were there to serve and that we were there to lose ourselves and not just us. I mean, even a stake president's family and a bishop's family have duties too and a responsibility too. And some mm-hmm. of the things that were said helped me understand that duty flows. When someone's in a leadership role, duty flows not just to and through those leaders, but their family have a responsibility. I remember many years ago, I was in a quorum, an elders quorum lesson when when we went through, I think it was Joseph F. Smith. It might have been Joseph Fielding one of those prophets, okay. <laughs> their father was speaking about their son, about his son. And I think it was Joseph F. Smith that he was speaking about his son. And he said, my son, there's the quote, there's something, something like this. I shouldn't say it's an exact quote. I think it is. But he said, my son loves duty more than pleasure. And mm-hmm. I just remember sitting in that quorum class, thinking about leadership and that son's responsibility along with his dad's calling of duty versus pleasure. And that made me have that desire to have, to want to be responsible 
and not just seek pleasure all the time at all. You know, I mean, our world is so filled with pleasure seeking from movies, yeah. just recreation to travel to, and I've had my share of travel. I've been blessed that way, enjoyed the world. We have a duty in our family when we go, when we're serving as a bishop, but when we go become a, you know, in any leadership role, even in our home, we have, our families have duty to help us fulfill our responsibilities. Like Alma said to his son, the people said, I think it was Coriantum, that the people see your actions and they won't believe in my words. And I just remember feeling that during that transition. It was during the transition from bishop to stake president that something one of those leaders said to my family during that ordination process or the setting apart process that helped me understand that. It gave me some talking points with my, for my family since then too. Yeah. Sort of that, uh, just the general concept of duty, right? And that's interesting because I think, I don't, I may be wrong, but there seemed to be more of an emphasis, generally speaking in our culture in the eighties and nineties, as far as this concept of duty, right? And I think sometimes we've, we've lost some of that benefit of seeing our participation in the church and in callings in that way. I think we we, we may have, but I I feel like it's a good thing for all of us to understand our duty. I mean, when we've taken upon ourselves the the name of Christ and we carry his name with us, then we have a duty to strive to be like him and to Mm -hmm. be his arms and legs and fulfilling his work. And we grow through it. We benefit from it and others do too. Yeah, that's great. Anything, you know, did you think back, uh, was it a good solid nine years or so that you served as a state president or? No, I actually served for about between the two, I served for seven years, but our family moved, we sold that we ended up selling our ranch and moving. So we didn't, you know, then, and I, I did have a a call from a general authority, one of the 12 at the time, because I was going to. That was an interesting process too. Let me say this for anybody that's in leadership, yeah. That, and I won't uh, get real specific in this, but it was one of the most instructional times of my life when I was thinking about we'd sold our ranch and we were thinking about moving, and our family had wanted us to let's all live closer together. And I, I decided we're going to buy a a home in the state. While we'd, we'd already purchased another farm, actually where we live now, but we'd already purchased this property and we were going to do something over time with that. But we were going to go ahead and buy another home, temporary home, and live there till we'd completed our assignment. And that's how I looked at it, completed our duty. I'll use that word again. Uh-huh. And, I, uh-huh. and I felt like that was a nine-year calling, Jen, even though we've all owned state prisons that served more and less I, yeah, we had a, on our mission. We had state presidents that served for eleven years, and we all hear back in the history of leaders that served for twenty <laughs> years and twenty five. Yeah. yeah, and these sweet general authorities of ours—they served to age seventy or their lifetime if they're. In, but I, I got a phone call. Our area president had said, um, "I think I'll ask one of the brethren to call you." And I got a call from a member of the twelve that I love and know well. And, was so touching to me. He said, so I understand that you've, uh, that you've sold your place. So what are your plans? And I said, well, my plans are to, we're going to go ahead and maybe keep the new place we've purchased, but we'll buy another home to fulfill our nine-year assignment. And he said, now, hold on. He said, <laughs> you, you feel like your calling was a nine-year calling? And I said, well, that's how I viewed it. 
And he asked me, and he's just wonderful at asking questions. He says, so do you think that's how the Lord looks at it? And I said, well, I'm not sure. <laughs> he said, well, here's what I think you're saying. He said, I think what you're saying is that you think that the Lord hasn't prepared other people to step in and that you think you're the only one that can do it. Is that what you think? And um, it was sort of a very polite little slap across the face. And he said, <laughs> I want you to pray about it and pray as to whether or not you and your family should go ahead and, and you make the decision to move and do what you need to do and accept whatever other callings. But he said, that's how this deal should work. And then he told an example of what happened in his life, where he had accepted a job offer and moved back in his youth during a heavy calling that he had. Anyway, that was a special experience for me. And, and so we went ahead and decided not to purchase that home. And they called a new leader, called one of my counselors, actually, that became one of the great, you know, he did a much better job than I did anyway. And so love that stake and those people and that, that leader. So. Yeah. Wow. That's such a helpful story because there is this feeling in leadership, you know, like obviously when you're called to serve as a missionary, there's, there's a time frame on there, you know, it's expected that you'll serve such and such time. And I think we project that onto many callings, you know, the bishop is generally five, five, six years, right. And the biggest stake presence generally nine years, right. And you don't want to disappoint anybody or feel like you're shirking your duties and I think there's a side of that and whether you felt this or not, or this general authority was alluding to it, just this, sometimes you get a feeling of being indispensable, right? And it reminds me of my, one of my favorite leadership quotes is the the graveyards are full of indispensable men. You yeah. know, at, the, at the end of the day, like you can't stick around forever. So, so it's, uh, you know, you can step aside and see what the Lord has in mind or who he's prepared to, to carry the, the work on, right? That's right. That's what came to me through that experience. Yes, yeah. a missionary is a two-year assignment. You're called as a missionary. You're assigned to your mission. Assignments may change. Calling sometimes don't if it's a two-year calling or 18-month calling for the sisters. But other callings have general guidelines. I mean, a, generally a stake. And I, I can't speak for the church itself and for the brethren. Right. But, <laughs> but I do know that uh, the Lord has prepared people to serve and that when we don't step yeah. up, others can and vice versa. We're a team and pulling together to build the Lord's kingdom. It's his kingdom. It's his church. And, and yet we have the freedom and the opportunity to, to accept assignments and job offers and move our families. And sometimes things change and that's okay. Yeah, yeah that's really helpful. Anything you remember from the transition out of that calling, especially, I mean, you're moving to a different stake. So maybe that sort of gave you a re restart on all things church-related, but anything worth mentioning from transitioning out of that calling? Well, yeah. We moved before we I was released, and and uh, keys are geographic. And that's um, we all know that, but a bishop only holds the keys for those that geography of his ward, and same with a stake, same with a mission. So we received permission. I mean, it was a few months, actually, living outside the stake, and that that was a simple letter from the First Presidency that was requested to give authorization to live outside of a stake, outside of where those keys are held. But those keys were held still within that stake. And I just love the order of the church. I mean, I yeah, just to be honest, I love everything about the church. <laughs> I, every principle and doctrine and covenants and ordinances and these principles of keys and how they work. And um, I learned much through that process, too. Yeah. 
Transitioning out was hard. You know, when you love people, you don't like to, you know, it's kind of the same process, I guess, in wards when they split them. I mean, it's, uh, you know, you love people and all of a sudden your next door neighbor, your people across the street are in a different ward and it's hard to not, uh, to think of not being with them and, and yeah. all that. But uh, we miss those people terribly and that's how it's supposed to be. And I, I look forward to the day when we're on the other side and when we all become a big family and we see each yeah, other. right. Have yeah. a little bit of time together. So how, how much time passed before the call to serve as a mission president came? I was actually the reverse of that. I, I, I don't know what the perception of how I've said this, but I, I'd i served in bishoprics and in elders quorums and as an elders quorum president, but I was called as a mission president before I was called as a bishop. Oh, okay. So before you were called as a, as a bishop and stake president then? And a stake president. I, I oh, was, wow. Interesting. I was called as a mission president in 2010. We left in 2011. We came back in 14, and I was home about a year from my mission, and we had some this precious ward that we'd moved into where our branch was, and we uh, was called as the bishop of that ward, and then from there, the stake president of that stake, and uh-huh. so I was released uh, just a few short years ago. Oh, Interesting. Interesting. So, uh, take us back to your call as a as a mission president. Is there a story behind that? Usually, the phone rings and your life changes. Well, yeah, y'all just real quick. I had this um, special experience with uh, we'd ha- we'd had a meeting at our home, and Elder Holland was uh, at, at that meeting at our at our home. It was a meeting for for the college, and uh, Elder Holland at that meeting pulled me aside and put his arm around me and, and I'd met him prior and loved him. And yeah, he's from St. George area, right? So George area. And yeah, but he put his arm around me and he said, uh, he simply asked me out of the blue, this was the shocker of my life. When he said, now brother Holm, how long would it take you to wind up your business affairs? And, um, and I said, well, elder Holland, I'll do whatever I'm asked to do. And, he said, uh, well, that's the right answer, but how long will it take you? And I said, tomorrow afternoon, if you know, I'm due. So it was actually a year after that, that a few months after that, we were called into his office and, and um, had a couple meetings with him. And then he, he said, I'm going to refer you to the, to the first presidency, but the, the calling we're considering it comes from the first presidency. And that's uh, when President Uchtdorf at the time called us into his office and issued the call. And that was a precious experience for us. Very precious. Yeah, that's awesome. And um, so I got to ask, since we spent some time uh, talking about your time as a stake president, how did being a mission president before being a stake president impact how you did things as a stake president? Does, Does anything come to mind? Yes, I will tell you that you know, being on a mission, and I just love missionaries and love everything about spreading the gospel. And so being as a mission president, there's a lot of things you wish state presidents and bishops to welcome their missionaries and to allow the missionaries to be their arms and legs and to be involved. And I, I hope I did a better job having been a mission president. I hope I did a better job than I would have having not served as a mission president first. And certainly that dominated my thinking. And what dominates our thinking determines the outcome of our lives. But missionary work, and I don't know that we did the job we could have done. Uh, you know, yeah, in every leadership role, when you're finished or released, you 
look back and say, well, I wish I'd have done this a little yeah. bit. I wish I'd have done that. And I experienced that. I still experience that. And when I see these precious people, I hope they felt of my love. I hope they, you know, I hope our, our stake was as missionary oriented as I think they were, as I hope they were. But as a, as a mission president, all you think about 24-7 is missionary work. I mean, you've got, we had 700 missionaries over those three years. Our hike was 280 missionaries at one time. It was during the age change and so much happening in our mission. And it was just a busy, busy time. And of course, you're full-time as a mission president. You're not full-time as a stake president. Right. If you want to be full-time, and it's like a <laughs> bishop, as you know, when you're a bishop, it's like an elders quorum presidency or Relief Society presidency, any presidency, even though you're not full-time necessarily, you're full-time in your thoughts. What's a bishop thinking about when he's going to bed at night? What's he, he's thinking about these precious members, and that's what's dominating his thinking at that time. I think I came home from my mission and, and in these calling both as a bishop and as a stake president, it dominated my thinking. The things that I had learned, the things that I had experienced on my mission affected me in a big, big way. Yeah. And I hope we were more effective as a result. Yeah, sure. So I'm curious, was there any particular way you handled the meetings with young men and women who are preparing to serve missions? Uh, do you feel like you did that in a different way or a unique way? Or how did you go about that? Well, yes. I mean, and that was one of the joys of my life was to call, help call and set apart all those missionaries as a stake president, especially as you know, stake president sets apart those, those missionaries or his counselors. But I just, for example, I told every one of them, there's not a single one that I didn't share with them the things that I heard when I got ready to go on my first mission about work hard, be obedient and love those people, fall in love with those people. And I, I would give them... Um, you know, I mean, all those missionaries that I interviewed when they arrived in our mission in South Carolina, one of the things I would do is I had this little sheet that I would note down lots of things about them. And I'd ask them how many times they've read the Book of Mormon and um, about their testimony day. And so working with missionaries to help them, it was just surprising to me how few had read the Book of Mormon even fully or more than once. And the difference in a missionary's life that had read the Book of Mormon maybe three times or five times before they went on their mission, or someone mm -hmm. who's truly converted, and those missionaries that were coming through our stewardship as a stake, as a ward or stake, as a bishop or stake president, to hand them off to a mission president converted, and to hand them off having read the Book of Mormon, having a deep and abiding testimony of the gospel, became the goal. And you see the the big difference in in missionaries and you know their conversion level. It does make a difference. And the wonderful thing about a mission, of course, is that it's never too late to be converted. And the missionary that finally becomes what we would call a fourth missionary from that great talk that I'm sure you're familiar with. But a missionary that really becomes converted to the fullest, if it's in their 24th month or their 18th month as a sister missionary is still okay, but to help them be con convert and have a lifelong devoted testimony to the gospel is the goal. Yeah, that's powerful. Thinking back of just walking into that experience as a mission president, you know, you we, we generally understand the process, you're set apart and then hit the ground of uh, what it was, uh, uh, South Carolina, right? 
that, South Carolina. that you preside over, right? So you get there and, you know, a bunch of missionaries, hundreds of missionaries look to you for leadership. And I mean, what was that like? Where do you even begin to lead in that context? Well, again, I love this church. I love the fact that they have good training for mission president. They have a, a close to a week of mission president. In fact, they just finished that. And on the church website, you can see the talks of the 12 on the first presidency to the mission presidents that are going out now that just went out the last couple of weeks. And so we had a week of drinking from a fire hose, if you will, prior to going out. And then you meet with this, the outgoing mission president for a short time. And it's uh, and the, the six months prior from the time you're called till the time you go to the mission president's seminar or mission leader seminar, they call them now, and then go out into the field. There's also mentoring and through the MTC and through the church has got these incredible leaders that have served missions that help mentor the new the new outgoing mission presence. So you feel like you have at least somewhat of an understanding of what you're going to do. But when you get there, it's, it's 24-7. Our very first night, we had cars impounded. And I'm up, but I took off my tie and went to bed. And at 11.30 or so, and at one o'clock in the morning, I'm back up for putting on my tie and my and I'm heading out to pick up some missionaries that their car had been impounded. And just, I mean, you're, you're leading lots of incredible young men and young women that are someone else's children and you're responsible mm-hmm. for them. And yeah. you never underestimate their strength. We were told that don't underestimate their power and their strength. Don't overestimate their judgment sometimes. <laughs> so, Sage advice. <laughs> these two had parked that car in a place they shouldn't have. And anyway, stuff happens. But yeah, when you get there, you, you're pretty well prepared, I think. And and excited and just in love with what you're about to do and converted to the goal, which is to gather scattered Israel. And it's a great experience. Yeah. Was anything coming to mind as far as casting a vision for your mission, as far as the process you went through with the zone conferences or how you in, kept them motivated or encouraged them or anything come to mind? I'm sure everybody with their background probably affects them. I was told, because I'm I'd been blessed in business. I'd, I was able to build a fairly successful business. I was extremely blessed, far beyond what I deserve. And, and the, these business success principles that you try to master in your life, you, you get out there and you start taking, well, I'm going to use those on our missionaries. And you realize uh-huh. wait, that business success principles aren't necessarily the Lord's spiritual success principles, but to turn them to Him, cast a vision of, whose work this is, of whose name we bear, to convert them, to turn their hearts to him and to put their trust in him. And yes, still use planning principles. I mean, you know, to have have dreams and goals and plans and to be well prepared and all those, you know, there's lots of little success principles that blessed my life and on my first mission and that blessed my life throughout my life and my business Mm -hmm. life and my family life. You certainly teach some of those things, but the vision of it is, I think we make a mistake. I don't want to speak for in any way to talk down to any leaders anywhere, but I think we make a mistake when we cast our vision, try to put our vision above the vision of the first presidency or above the vision of the, of the Savior, whose church this is, that if our vision is aligned with his 
and theirs, meaning the first presidency and the form of the 12th, then we're in alignment and alignment creates velocity and lack of alignment creates drag. And I think the Lord doesn't want us to have drag in his work to align ourselves with him and his leaders that he's placed in charge. And and so, yeah, there's all the conferences and one-on-one interviews and all the things you do in, as a mission president and all the things we do as stake and ward leaders are to turn the hearts of the people to him and to connect them eternally with him because we're temporary cogs in this big wheelhouse. I mean, we're, we're not, you know, a bishop's in there for a little while and a stake's in President's in there for a little while, mission president's in there for a little while. But if we're connecting them to him and to his vision, his purpose, then I think we're doing the work we're set to do. Yeah, that's really helpful because it is tempting. And I think a lot of uh, maybe it's easier to see in, in a context of a, of a mission president just because it's a full-time calling. But uh, I think in any calling we serve in, there's sort of this temptation to do what you do in, <laughs> in your other forums in your life, whether it's your career or whatnot, just sort of apply those principles that work there and figure, hey, maybe they'll work here too. And, and I'm sure there's some that do, but others, you sort of have to check yourself, right? And just make sure you're not relying too much on on those experiences and still relying on the spirit and and seeing where the Lord wants to take you, right? Well, and I, I think, I mean, just this is just my opinion. This isn't uh, yeah. doctrinal, but you know, we try often to distinguish ourselves. And in business, I've always told my business people that we either become distinct or we become extinct. And, you know, we're trying to distinguish ourselves and to do things most people won't do and to become successful mm-hmm. and, and to drain the big drains and to set the big goals and to make the specific plans and to execute those plans with precision and become excellent at what we do and we're blessed. And, those things are true in business, and and I think they're to a large degree true in life. That you know, if we're committed to success principles, then those principles they distinguish us and they help us. They bless us if we do them properly, and especially if we're properly motivated. If our intentions are pure, and we strive to keep our intentions in alignment, then you know we can be successful in life. And some of that stuff, you know, I. I just fell in love with my missionaries. My wife and I both just love them. We This last Sunday, we had one of them show up in our ward unexpectedly. And just the <laughs> reunion, the hugs, and the love for this incredible missionary and our memories of him are so profound and powerful, even though it's been probably seven or eight years since we've even seen him. Didn't come to one of our last reunion. You just fall in love with these people. And so I, I want them to be successful in their, in their faith meaning in the gospel. I want them to be successful in, in their families. And financially, I want them to be successful. And we want them to be, so you just want them to be well-rounded and happy and successful. So you, you tend to want to teach them some of those things on their mission and, and on your mission. If, you know, if you're a mission leader, you want to help them with all those things because you look beyond just their mission. Their mission is going to prepare them for life. And generally, if they do good on their mission and you get them on the right trajectory, that will help bless their lives. So yeah. I think you can help them in some other areas too. But generally, it's connecting them with heaven that I think blesses them the most. Fantastic. Anything else uh, worth mentioning as you reflect on those uh, those three years in, in South Carolina as you presided over that mission? 
Yeah, I mean, I I could spend hours talking about things that I that <laughs> touched us and 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 helped us it helped us be even more converted. We had some mottos that we asked our missionaries to think about, and that is to be to be finishers, to learn learn to love tough things. As missions are hard, sometimes yeah. the hardest things we do are what benefit us the most and what we learn the most from. But to love tough things and to be finishers. And if you're going to start something, finish it. Do the good due diligence to make sure it's something you should do. And then mm-hmm. if you start doing it, finish it. Be a finisher. And I remember this one young missionary. In fact, I talked to him a couple of days ago, this sweet missionary from Rexburg, Idaho, that he, um, uh, just as we were about to finish our mission, and he was toward the end of his mission, I get this phone call. And I had a general authority visiting us that Nope, there was a couple of days, but I get a phone call on a Monday on a P day. And this um, phone call was that this young missionary had been in an accident. They'd been, he and his companion had been over helping a family. There had been a heavy storm come through and a big tree had fallen. And they were over. This man had a, a chainsaw and he was cutting logs, cutting up this tree. The missionaries were helping him stack those cut branches. Well, this young missionary had bent down just pick up something just as this man had cut a limb off the tree and the tree swung and it smacked him in the face and it literally crushed his skull. And oh my goodness. he was life flighted into a hospital. And, and I get this phone call, my wife and I do, that he's in the hospital and that we need to get there. Actually, as he was being life flighted, so we rushed, me and this sweet brother, General Authority, Elders Wick is who it was. And, mm. and I love that man. And we, we rushed over to the hospital and and I come walking in, and on the all the way there, I'm talking to his parents, this young missionary's parents, and I'm talking. It was an hour and a half drive, and um, I'm talking to his parents, and I'm talking to the doctor, and the mission presidents have authority to be able to even the legal authority with their missionaries. So I was able to get the neurosurgeon to tell me what was happening, and this neurosurgeon was saying, President Holm, this young man's not going to live. He's not going to make it. This is really tough. He's got... Anyway, he went through all this with me. By the time we get there, we rush into this hospital room, and I'm just so emotional with this young man that I that I love and his wife, and his mother. We had gotten his mother on an airplane, and she was in route from Rexburg to South Carolina by the time, or at least we had the tickets all lined up and had her on her way. And we called a a couple to be in charge of helping shepherd her and get her there and get her from the airport over to the hospital and. You know, all this was happening. And I, anyway, I walk into the hospital room and his face was so swollen. And his, he had this, these tubes down his throat and his eyes were swollen shut, it looked like. And I, I got down in his face and I, and I said, Elder, and called him by name. And I said, Elder, I, I love you. And Heavenly Father loves you. And just start talking to him. And I didn't know that he was conscious. And, and all of a sudden, tears, even though his eyes were swollen shut, tears just flowed, began to flow. Oh, wow. And he starts talking to me through this, these tubes down his throat. And he says, President Hall, I'm not going home. And I, I said, uh, Elder, we'll see. We'll see what happens. We're just going to get you healed up. We love you, and we'll get you healed up. You don't need to talk. And he said, again, just gurgling through that, those tubes, he said, I'm not going home. I'm going to finish you. Finish you. Finish you. And I said, well, we love you, and we're going to get you healed up. And, and we, and me and Elderswick, gave him a blessing, a priesthood blessing, that he would live and that he would get through that. And that was a 
tender, tender experience. His sweet mom arrived. They, she stayed there for nine days. He was in ten, intensive care for most of that time. We got him on an airplane with a, with a helmet on and got him home to the neurologists and others that would help him out in Rexburg. And uh, shortly after I went home, for we'd finished our mission six weeks later, he returned. He only had like three or four weeks, but this young man was not going to not finish his mission. It was so <laughs> important to him. He was able to come back, that sweet new mission president, and the missionary department allowed him to come back to South Carolina to finish his, his time because it was that critical to him. Hmm. And that young man is one of my favorite people in the world. He's just said, I'm a finisher. Yeah. Oh, so inspiring. I just love that. Those uh, glimpses of, of strong leadership that come through stories like that, that, you know, you set a culture through these, these mottos and efforts that you did. And you can see the power in those things, you know, giving people hope and encouragement when all that seems lost, you know? So that's, I love that. I appreciate you telling me that, that story. Any, uh, as I guess, as we wrap up here, any other point, principle, story, concept that uh, you want to make sure we squeeze in here? Do we, uh, do we cover what, what we need to today? Well, I mean, I, I, you know, I'm, I'm no expert on anything. I'm just, a, <laughs> just, a, I, I have a sense of duty and I want to do my duty. And, I, you know, I'm, I'm privileged that you would invite me to come and be on this. I know you're doing, I haven't listened to you as much as my wife has, but I, I'm now signed up where I'm going to listen to you regularly. <laughs> All right. But I, nice. I, know I appreciate that. There's people like you, Kurt, there's, um, programs like this that help bless people's lives. And I do know that as we become converted, as we align our lives with leadership principles and with the principles of heaven, then we're going to be blessed. Yeah. You're blessing a lot of people. I'm grateful to have been a part of this, uh, honestly. Yeah. You inspire others. And, you know, I'll, I'll just say this, probably the last thing I'll say in closing up my brief time here is that the thing that inspires human beings the most, in my opinion, there's really only two things that inspire people, what they see and what they hear. And, you know, what they see in their leaders, what they see in their body language, what they see them do and their examples. I mean, we're all inspired by what we see. We see other people and then we're inspired by what we hear. And sometimes those are the same thing. Sometimes there's consistency consistency between what we hear and what we see. And sometimes there's not. And of course, it's confusing to people when they see one thing and hear something different. But in, um, you know, in our, all of our lives, so all of us that are listening to you regularly, we need to make sure that we be the example of what people see and what they hear from us that will inspire them. Not that we're trying to be inspirational, but that we're just living and doing what we should. And that will inspire others to do what they should. And you're a big part of that. And so I hope all oh, of us will you. constantly try to try to live and project what we're supposed to, to be examples of the Savior, examples of saints, examples of leaders, and that we can inspire our families and others around us to, to do and be what we should. So thank you for all you're doing. Awesome. Well, I do have to sneak in one last question because it's traditional here on, on the Leading Saints podcast. The last question I have for you, Monty, is as you reflect back on your time as a leader, how has being a leader helped you become a better follower of Jesus Christ? Boy, that's a good question. And I will just tell you that my desire to follow him, I think, has helped me be a better leader. 
So I don't know how being a leader has helped me fall. I know the things I've learned as a leader, yeah. things I've learned about love, the things I've learned about service really come from him. The most thing, well, the best things I've ever learned come from studying him. I will say that I know him because of my studies of him and my desires to be more like him. And I've got a long ways to go. Serving others has helped me feel like I'm being like him. And if I'm asking myself regularly, what, you know, how, what would he do right here? What would he do right now? How would he treat this situation? I think that's helped me be more like him. And again, I'm not there yet. I've got a long ways to go, but I'd like to do. That concludes this episode of the Leading Saints podcast. Hey, listen, would you do me a favor? You know, everybody's got that friend who listens to a ton of podcasts, and maybe they aren't aware of Leading Saints. So would you mind taking the link of this episode or another episode of Leading Saints and just texting it to that friend? You know who I'm talking about, the friend who always listens to podcasts and is always telling you about different podcasts. Well, it's your turn to tell that friend about Leading Saints. So share it. We'd also love to hear from you. If you have any perspective or thought on this episode, you can go to leadingsaints.org and actually leave a comment on the episode page or reach out to us at leadingsaints.org slash contact. And remember to get on the email newsletter list, simply go to leadingsaints.org slash 14. It came as a result of the position of leadership which was imposed upon us by the God of heaven who brought forth a restoration of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And When the declaration was made concerning the own and only true and living church upon the face of the earth, we were immediately put in a position of loneliness, the loneliness of leadership from which we cannot shrink nor run away, and to which we must face up with boldness and courage and ability.